Hey there, and welcome to another edition of Inside Intercom. This week, we're taking a look at the relationship between storytelling and product design. Two words that when said together raise no shortage of opinions. But is conflating one with the other just a matter of jargon? We certainly don't think so. And to better explore why story matters, how to apply it to design in an impactful way, Intercom Director of Brand Design, Stuart Scott Curran, is joined in the studio by James Buckhouse. James is the founder of the Sequoia Creative Lab, where he and his team apply story-driven design to products and experiences for both Sequoia and its portfolio companies during what he calls pivotal company moments. More on those later. James honed his storytelling skills, though, by spending nearly a decade as an animator at DreamWorks. You're probably familiar with a bit of his work there, including the Shrek franchise and Madagascar, among others. Eventually, though, he found his way over to Twitter as a senior experience architect before linking up with Sequoia. In his chat with Stuart, James covers what we really mean when we speak about storytelling and design. I like to separate the architecture of story as being a conceptual machine from the art of storytelling, which we need a different word for. And quite honestly, I think that different word is experience design. What is film world experience going to teach us all about designing products? We're kidding ourselves if we think we're just designing the UI inside of the screen on our phone. There's always a person on the other end of that UI, and that person is going through something. There's always some sort of human story that the human involved is going through. How to better bring our more technical teammates into the storytelling process. As soon as you could get the engineer to draw on the paper with you and you can literally draw it together to make a solution, then everyone's invested in co-creating this. If you like what you hear and want to check out more Inside Intercom interviews, you can subscribe to our show over at iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And if you're really liking what you find there, we'd be forever grateful if you shot us a rating or a review. But enough about us. Let's get to the good stuff and hop into the studio with Stuart Scott Kern and James Buckhouse. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. James, welcome to the show. Thank you for coming in. It's great to be here. <laughs> you have like a really fascinating background that that I'd love to just touch on briefly to begin with before getting into, you know, tech and design in the in the typical sense. You spent nearly a decade working on animated features with DreamWorks. So I'm I'm interested in the type of work that you were doing there, uh what the arc of your time looked like there and what led you to moving on. Yeah, I worked on all the Shrek movies, the Madagascar movies. I started out in special effects there at a company called PDI, which was one of the earliest CG houses. I think it was started in 1980. Mm -hmm. And then they were bought by DreamWorks, became PDI DreamWorks. And when DreamWorks made the shift from hand-animated cartoons to CG cartoons, I started working there. And I started working in a group that is a combination of cinematography and choreography called Layout. And my particular subgroup of that was called Rough Layout. And Rough Layout was a place where you do the first pass, the kind of previous pass of the film, before the other animators got in, but after the storyboard artist had worked. And that's how I started. And then from there, over the course of a decade, developed a kind of a specialty for a few things. One was or I would dip into the art department to work on costume and visual design, and I would dip into the story department to work on story arcs and jokes, and specifically this thing called Punch-Up. And Punch-Up was where the film's going, 
it's going along, it's fine, then it's dull. Yeah. And you can't really change the arc of the characters. You can't really change where they're going or change what they're doing. But we need something in there to make it better. And so that's where some of us would get into a room and we would do a punch-up session trying to find like that thing that would make it worth – that would you know find the audience's attention again. But it wasn't just about making jokes funny. And it took me a little while to figure out what was actually good in story there. What was good wasn't just having a character behave as the character ought to behave, nor was it doing something the audience doesn't expect, although all those things are good. It was about figuring out the emotional state of the character as they enter the scene and then finding a way to transform them from that initial state to some other state by the end. So if Shrek walks in happy, the scene's not over until he's unhappy. Mm-hmm. If Shrek walks in sad, the scene's not over until he has hope again. Right. And so the job of everyone's job in the film, but specifically when I was doing punch-up or when I was working in the cinematography and choreography was to find those things, find those actions, find those moments, those ideas that we could do that could transform the character from that one state into the next. And we do this at the scene level. We do it at the sequence level. We do it at the act level. And then you do it over the course of the film, too. And if ever we brought in a second character, usually the second character was in the opposite state. So if Shrek was happy, you know, Donkey would be unhappy. Or if Shrek was unhappy, Donkey would be happy. And then both would transform to the opposite state and then back again and back again. So you always had this contrast of emotional states between scenes, between sequences. And if ever, anyone was ever on the same page, like a Shrek and Donkey were both happy, then you bring in a third character, like Puss in Boots. So you'd always have a contrast between emotional states, which weirdly is exactly yeah. what we're doing when we're designing products. Yeah. Right? We're never designing features. Let's hope you're not designing features. You're never designing... You know, you're never designing just a new user flow. You're never designing just a sign-up form. You're never designing just a way to share. You're never designing just pixels to click. You're always designing some sort of complement to the human condition that takes you from some initial state to a transformed state. At least, at least I think you are if we're doing it right. Yeah. I mean, I definitely had a similar thing. I, I was designing apparel at Nike for, for, for 10 years. and that What was did you like, design there? I designed soccer uniforms. Nice. Um, and that was like an interesting transition from, from that to um, like the digital realm. So like I'm interested in like what, what the pool was for you from, you know, working on those stories and those animated features to, you know, something more, more product focused like what was the what was the pool there for you well i guess there's a couple of things to think about that are interesting there one was we're kidding ourselves if we think we're just designing the ui inside of the screen on our phone there's always a person on the other end of that ui and that person is going through something right so they're riding on a bus and they're thinking of their aunt or they're in line at the dmv or they're you know just back from work figuring out what to have for dinner or they're in the middle of the town square when the tanks roll in and they're finding some way to share with the world what's happening right in that moment. There's always some sort of human story that the human involved is going through. And so I've always thought of design as this long 
interwoven story of a person's daily life and a person's every moment. And these, the things that we make are just multipliers or augmentations uh, to that. Directly how I got in, though, was by punch-up. How I got in was I had a brief period where I became a ghostwriter, mm -hmm. writing for every C-suite up and down Silicon Valley, writing jokes, writing character arcs, writing summer blockbuster-style stories about products and about the arcs of companies. And that led me to meet a bunch of different companies from, you know, Facebook and YouTube and Google and HP and many more. And finally met the team at Twitter and did some writing for them and then joined Twitter's team and this kind of combination of story and brand then quickly transitioned into helping the company think about where the product ought to go, not where the product had been. And so when I left there, I was the experience architect, and my job was to essentially storyboard out experiences for events like World Cup or the Oscars that could both tell the story of the product, but more importantly, tell the story of the people who use it, right? Yeah. You touched on something there, which which I think is interesting, and I wanted to go a little bit deeper on, because today, as as founder of the Sequoia Creative Lab, you do talk a lot about using story driven design and and storytelling to help create great user experiences, and that's that's I think a, a term that that you hear banded around quite quite a lot, and and sometimes I'm not totally convinced that everybody like understands what we're really talking about when we talk about storytelling out with the context of like a movie or a or a comic book or so on so i was i was just really interested like what you think that that term means for like a, a startup or a, or a product team first of all the the word drives people crazy. Yeah. Right? Right. There's like no faster way to make people actively ignore you and like hate you for no good reason than to tell them you're a storyteller, right? It, it inspires this level of like mistrust and hate that is fascinating. And yet without story, we have no mechanism by which to generate a machine inside the minds of others that does positive work on our behalf and on behalf of the planet. The story is what motivates us. Story is what helps us find meaning in not just our momentary actions, but in our long-term actions. Things are worth it for us in the end because of story. Story is quite directly the light at the end of the tunnel that pulls us through difficult times. Story is what helps interns get through medical school. Story is what helps designers push in that final moment when they're tired and they don't want to continue to ask the tough questions that's going to get a better result. Story is what drives our democracy when we do it well. Story really matters. But storytelling, that's something that instantly makes people yeah. filled with mistrust. So I like to separate the two. I like to separate the architecture of story as being a conceptual machine from the art of storytelling, which which we need a different word for. And quite honestly, I think that different word is experience design. Mm -hmm. That's where you're actually doing your storytelling. That's when you're showing people what you mean and what matters and what you care about and why something's important. And so thinking about the experience 
and the design of the, the experience. Like, how do you feel some of the work that you did in film carries over to, to what you're doing at Sequoia? Has that influenced the way you think about a, like a product design process? Oh, totally. Yeah. Totally. So we actually have a process there called the product experience matrix, mm-hmm. which it combines a couple of things that, that probably designers are familiar with, but it does it in a new way. So one is you start with personas. Mm-hmm. You map out the personas, and those personas are the character in your movie. So you're finding out, uh, let's choose like an example like DoorDash. You've got people at home who are the diners trying to have their meal. You've got people who are the drivers who are going to drive the car. You've got the person who runs the restaurant. You've got uh, the customer success, quality assurance person back at DoorDash headquarters who's helping solve problems. And these are all characters in your film, and each one of those characters is important, and each one of those characters is going through an arc. And so you would write out, you would imagine in your mind, and then actually write like a novelist or like a filmmaker, you would write out the story of each one of those personas. And then we would actually storyboard that, so we would draw it, and so you'd see what that looks like. And then a new thing that, because lots of people have personas, and oftentimes people will storyboard. The new thing that we do that is so helpful is we align those stories stacked one on top of each other, and then we look for shared experiences. And then we imagine how those shared experiences, whether it's a DoorDash, whether it's a B2B company or a SaaS company or a consumer company, you look for those shared experiences and you look for how your product then is serving each and every one of the personas or one of the characters in those shared experiences. So you, and you learn just fascinating things. Like, for instance, you would think the family, the dining family back home has nothing to do with the story of when the dasher is inside the restaurant. But of course they do because the family's back there wondering, you know, is everything going all right with the meal? Is this going to work? Just like you would think the restaurant has nothing to do with the experience once the dasher has finally delivered the meal and the family is happily there eating. But of course the restaurant has a role there. They're wondering, like, how'd that go? Was that a positive extension of my brand? Am I going to get slammed on Yelp? Mm-hmm. Or have I just suddenly expanded my number of tabletops to an infinite number because of this service? They're, and they're interested, right? They want to know. And the same thing is true for a consumer app. The same thing is true for an enterprise service or app or platform. And you can start to see that when you map out these stories in a matrix. So how do we how do we directly apply storytelling from filmmaking to product design? We do it through this product experience matrix. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know that episode two of Offscript, our new series of candid conversations with Intercom, all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing, is out now on YouTube. Here's a teaser featuring our chief product officer, Paul Adams, discussing AI-first customer service. The best place for me to start is that technology only moves in one direction. Once you go through these like before-after moments, you never go back. AI has clearly already shown us that it can help in transformational ways. It has given us a new way to do customer service. And that new way is AI first. The business that provides incredible customer service is the business that will win. And the earlier that people lean into this completely new mindset, the earlier they can deliver this incredible holy grail type customer experience, 
It's a huge opportunity for businesses to literally change how people think about them. It's just a matter of time. That's all to come on episode two of Offscript. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel right now and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. In a recent guide, a recent how-to guide for content uh, that you created at Sequoia, uh, you advised to persuade with emotion but justify with logic. I guess that applies not just to content, uh, but when presenting design, like how do you think like designers as individuals and, and creative people can like improve their storytelling skills or their experience design skills, particularly when it comes to, to presentation? Like what, what would you encourage them to do differently or, or, or better to have like a bigger impact? Sure. That's a great question. So let's think about the process that doesn't work. The process that doesn't work is the truly talented and brilliant designer goes off and designs a solution and finds an answer and the answer is good, right? And that answer took work and weeks, maybe months and hundreds of iterations to get right. But no one else was a part of that. They were off on their own. And then she or he goes to present the results and walks into the room and says, I have the answer, behold, right? How's that going to go, right? Always terrible because then it says, it explains to those listening, and your job now is to find holes or problems in my solution. And that's a terrible relationship. What you want is a relationship much more like improvisational theater or jazz musicians or people that know how to complement the other person's actions with actions of their own to together create something worth having where you're bringing people along through the journey, not just by giving them updates along the way, but by involving them in the problem-seeking process in the first place. So what is the pain that we're finding together in the world and how do we think we can attack it? And by bringing other people along from the very beginning. A trick that I would do often is at the very beginning of a project to design something, I would find the engineering lead and the product lead and the design lead, or if I was the design lead, I would be there. I would have a sheet of paper and we'd talk about the problem in the world and I would take out a pencil and I would make the smallest mark I could on the page, like a circle or a square, and I'd say something like, this is the user. And then I'd hand the pencil to the engineer and say, what are we trying to do? And as soon as you can get the engineer to draw on the paper with you and you can literally draw together to make a solution, then everyone's invested in co-creating this thing. This is a process we did at DreamWorks when we were storyboarding, but it's a process I first saw in product design uh, with Josh Brewer at Twitter, mm. and it, it works so well, right? So when we were at DreamWorks, we would do it where you would be telling jokes and we'd be you, everyone's kind of shouting at the same time when you're writing jokes, and you're writing only – you'd have uh, – pads all over the table. There are homemade storyboarding pads where we went through so many every day that it was just a process to like take a giant pile of paper. We would like put a weight on the side. We had this like rubber cementy style glue that I'm sure was toxic that we would like paint over the edge with this one giant gross looking brush to make our own pads, every, you know, and because we would just cycle through so many. And then we only drew with Sharpies, which God knows why, but but partly, you, Sharpies are so dull and flabby and gross that you can't do a finicky drawing. And so if you can only do a bold drawing, you have to commit that this is, I'm going to do it. And you can't erase. you got to just go, right? So the storyboarding process there involved bold, confident drawing. 
And it also meant that we were constantly drawing over each other's fingers in the middle of an exciting moment because, you know, your hands would be on the table, my hands would be on the table. Right? You know, I started to go, and then, you know, he could go like this, and you're like, and you would pull the pen out of my hand, and you're like this, and you would finish the drawing for me, drawing across my fingers to get there, sometimes in a very competitive way, sometimes in a, a loving and cooperative way, sometimes both of those things at the same time. And the beauty of seeing Josh do that with engineers and PMs made me think, okay, you know, that's a good one. Let's let's do that. Let's do that from now on. Have you ever done that? We 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 do a lot of that. Like we we tend to not on pads so much, but like whiteboards, we definitely have like big markers, and we encourage we we try and use only one marker that we'll pass backwards and forwards between us rather than having everybody have their own separate marker and and and, and work on that and I, f- I feel like it does maybe a little bit of the same thing it encourages like you're passing the baton almost to like, oh, to sure. like somebody else for sure and the trick is to not have the designer who's probably the best drawer but you right. can't have the designer draw all the time exactly they should draw the least amount of the time right exactly of course the designer can always go back and redraw it in fact we have this thing called at twitter we would call the story map that uh, I've also used now at the portfolio companies at Sequoia, where after you have a session like this, I would then redraw it. And like I have a, I have one from the Oscars that shows then, oh, okay, here's where the celebrity is talking to the Twitter mirror. Oh, okay, here's where the voting, in-app voting button works. Oh, okay, I see all those things. Oh, wait, there's the family sitting together at the couch for the Oscars party. Oh, here, they're listening on the radio. That's driving TuneIn. They're watching a thing on TV. What should we have our on-air call out on TV be? Oh, I know. It'll be the thing that'll drive to either the voting or the mirror or the whatever it was, right? And you create this. One of my very favorite words from old-timey science is orrery. And orrery is a model of the universe, the way that you best imagine the universe to operate. I mean, even if you've got it wrong, right? There are orrery's that, that, you know, proved mechanically that the Earth was at the center and that the other planets revolved around it, you know, with complicated retroactive motion and stuff to make it true or appear true. So you can be wrong with an orrery, but the point is to have some model, and not just a mental model, but like a physical manifestation of your mental model so we can all talk about it. And so although there's been lots of different types of story maps, the way that I kind of tried to reinvent how we could combine storyboarding from film with story maps from you know, product management with a story map that the whole team could rally behind was to draw these orreries that showed all the interconnected parts of the planet, uh, the, you know, of your solar system you're building, of all your products, interconnected part of your products, draw how those might flow together, but not all the way down to what the actual information architecture would be or the actual product flow logic would be, but enough that you could feel the emotional transformation that would occur for the person who went through that experience. And thinking about the experiences that that you help your portfolio companies design at the Sequoia Creative Lab, there's a phrase that I saw which is, you typically help your companies during those like pivotal moments, pivotal company moments, and I'm and I'm curious about that. Like, how would you like describe and identify those like pivotal moments, and like what are some of the most common challenges facing a startup or an organization during those times? Well, whenever I'm lucky enough to actually get to work with something as precious to a founder as their own product. I go into it with the humility of knowing that they undoubtedly already have the answers. And often my job is to help listen to everyone's 
take on the situation and help organize it in a way so that people can all say, yeah, that's what we've been talking about. That's the thing we don't know how it fits together. Or that's the thing that we know must fit together, but it currently isn't. And it's more about helping them say aloud their own good ideas that they already have and then organizing it in a way that they can share it back to the world. Occasionally, I do have an additive idea or maybe rarely, but maybe sometimes my own original idea to contribute. But almost always it's about most of design, I think, is about carefully listening to the situation and then pointing back to people, reflecting back to people what they said and how that might go together. And so how do you identify a pivotal moment? It's when a company is going from one state to the next. So it's when they're starting to grow. It's when they're entering a new market. It's when they're changing their approach to their product or they're you know, launching a new product or they're thinking of the people who use their product in a different way. It's all those, all those moments. And one, one final thing that I wanted to, to ask you about, which was... Final. Um, it can't really be the end. It's is already, it the end? Already. I spoke too much. No, time goes fast. Ugh. At the Sequoia Creative Lab, like you, you do um, a lot of events. You have your design fellowships are a big yeah. part of the program. Yeah, I'm just I'm really interested in how that came about, what the broad goals of the program are, and if there are maybe you've identified particular holes that you're looking to fill, educational or otherwise, within the design community around those initiatives. Oh, for sure, for sure. Let's think about design education right now. Mm-hmm. Design education does a wonderful job of teaching you big ideas, or it does a marvelous job of teaching you specific tools. But rarely does it do a good job at giving you the experience of shipping a product. And so how do you get the experience of shipping a product if you've never shipped a product, right? So the Sequoia Creative Labs Design Fellows Program is a way to take designers that have extraordinarily high potential, but not that many actual products in their portfolio that they've shipped. For whatever reason, they have not yet shipped a number of products, and it's a way to work with them with the projects within the portfolio so that they learn through doing and through their own design work real products for teams that need it. And so this was a way to help designers get the skills they needed, not just skills, help them get the experience that they needed so they have real products in their portfolio so they could get the jobs they want. And it's a big difference between what you get paid as a visual designer versus what you get paid as a product designer. We don't talk about that a lot in the product design world and the design world in general, but it's a big difference. And so it means a lot to people to be able to move fluidly between those. And we're, we're getting to the place now where we're starting to talk about the full process designer, the designer that can understand research, the designer that has a visual background, the designer that can create an information architecture, the designer that can create, who knows, all the way up to not just designing a product and a design system, but then also the front-ended experience, right? I also love it. I love that part of the program. It's my favorite part, honestly. Yeah. And it's you need to go into it with the understanding that the part of the reason I do it is because I learn too, right? right? It's not me teaching people. It's together we learn from each other how to get better. And I'm across this like latticework of different experiences and different ideas and different approaches and different aesthetics and valuing the different ideas, approaches, and aesthetics of each person who comes through, valuing them equally, not I am the teacher, you are the student, but we together are chasing curiosity 
we together are in the pursuit of excellence in all forms. We together are finding the best answer by learning from each other and finding ways to augment each other's ideas and help each other improve where we are weak. And so it's my secret weapon on how do I get better, right? Yes, yeah, honestly, it. Right? <laughs> that's it. If I work with people that are better than you, that's my, oh my that's, God. that's yeah. my trick for sure, <laughs> for sure. And recognize, hopefully, each and every person you work with has something uh, where they are much better. Let's hope, right? Exactly. Well, long may it continue. Long may we continue to 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 learn from each other, uh, James Buckhouse. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Well, thank you for having me. Oh, and I brought gifts. Now, these gifts aren't, you know, they're not for me. They're for everyone listening. Go find me at, at Buckhouse on Twitter. And I've got a few things for you there. One is some links to the design story map that we talked about, links to this guide for exceptional content. And then I'd love to start a conversation with each and every designer listening today about two things. One is we are hard at work on an open source design career ladder. If you have thoughts on creating a design career ladder that you'd like to contribute to this open source project, I'd love to hear it. And along with that, I'd love to hear from you on what is the engineer to designer ratio at your company. It's only when we start talking about this stuff that we'll be able to know what we need to do and how we can move forward. Okay, thank you. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.